remain standing and pray with me, please. Our Father, (laughs) Daddy, it is a privilege to approach you that way. Help us now as your children, Father, to hear from you, to receive from you. So, God, we ask you now to teach us, we pray. And may the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to encourage you this morning to take out a Bible and open it to Luke uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13 that Deacon Ann read. Uh, That can be found on page 869 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, It's Luke 11, beginning with verse 1. So while while you're turning there, I remember back in 2008, my first encounter with uh, the rule of St. Benedict. It's a little book of precepts written by Benedict of Nursia around 480 to 550 AD. And it was a little book written for monks who were living in monastery communities under the authority of an abbot. And I, I was intrigued by a concept I read in one of the very first few paragraphs. And it, was, it goes something like this. Benedict said that an abbot or a father of a monastery must be able to teach in a twofold manner. He said that they were to first point their disciples to all that is good and holy by their life and example. And then, and secondly, and only after that, were they to teach by words. They were to teach by example first then by words. And this, this concept struck me. It really jumped out at me because I don't know about you, but if, if I'm trying to do something that's like really hard or really difficult or really important and I don't know that much about it, I really do prefer to find someone who can show me how to do it because they've already done it or they've had experience with it or at least they can tell me how to do it. It's kind of that principle, example first, then words. And friends, that really is kind of though what we see in the lives of the disciples this morning in Luke's gospel at Luke 11, 1 to 13, particularly when it comes to the matters of prayer. Because see, these disciples were Jewish guys, which means that they had been around the temple and they'd been around people praying and they'd been exposed to prayer all their lives. But they probably sensed something was a little bit different about Jesus's prayers or perhaps that Maybe something was missing from their own prayer lives, that Jesus had something they didn't have. And so in their gospel text today, that passage that begins or or has the Lord's prayer in it or a portion of it, these guys are seeing Christ praying. And when he's done, they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And what we see really unfold in this text is that the Lord teaches it by example first and in words later. And beloved, there are six things that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for uh, from this text, but we're only going to have time to look at the first three. And really, those first three things really are foundational to the other uh, three things that would come after that. So we're going to only look at the first three, and they're this. Number one, Jesus teaches his disciples to call God Father. Number two, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray for God's glory to prevail in the world. And then thirdly, Jesus teaches them to pray that God's kingdom will break into their lives and into the world. And so number one, Jesus teaches his disciples to call or address God as Father. You can look back at verse 2. And this is Jesus speaking. He said to them, when you pray, say, 
Father. Now, friends, there's been a lot of ink spilled about how Jesus calling God Father, it's pater in the Greek here, or Abba in the Aramaic, was like a new concept to Jesus and his followers at, at that time. And it really is true. The word that Jesus uses here for father is like a children's word for daddy. That's what my kids call me. They don't come to me, oh, father. They call me daddy. And so Jesus is no doubt pointing to them or pointing out to them or pointing them to a new, that there's a new level of intimacy. There's a new relationship of God that, that's coming on the scene by this term daddy. And so, friends, it's very true that the disciples of both then and even today, God is our daddy, okay? But if one looks back through the history of the people of God, really the first occurrence of God being father to his people is really not in Luke eleven two, 2, but actually the first time occurs when Moses confronts Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Moses goes and he confronts Pharaoh with a message from the Lord telling him, Telling Pharaoh this, he says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, that is the Lord speaking, let my son go that he may serve me. Now let me ask you something. If, if what, you know, sons have what? Fathers, right? They have fathers, right? So who would be the father then in Exodus? It would be God. And so the concept of God being father of his people really goes all the way back to Exodus. And so it's not necessarily a new thing that Jesus is doing here when he tells his followers to address or call God father. It's actually a little bit deeper than that. See, by Jesus using the word father, he was mirroring the language of Moses. He was mirroring the language of Moses confronting Pharaoh in Exodus, except this time with Jesus. Beloved, there's a new Exodus coming. There was a new deliverance coming that Jesus knew about. And that this time, the father of the people of God would not just deliver them from the Pharaohs of the world and a bondage like that in Egypt, but their God and father would deliver and rescue his adopted sons and daughters from their ultimate enemies, enemies like fear, enemies of evil, injustice, sin, death, and ultimately hell. And that God would do this deliverance through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of another Moses, if you will, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's son. So Jesus instructing his disciples to call God Father, was certainly a term of endearment and intimacy. But beloved, it was also a foreshadowing of their deliverance from evil and sin and death that was to come. N.T. Wright also comments, he says that the very first word in this, in this particular passage contains with it the idea of hope. So there's the foreshadowing of their deliverance to come, there's also an idea of hope. How? How does that happen or Why? Perhaps you remember the story of the prodigal son found in Luke 15. A son that's full of desires for the world and the flesh, seeking his own independence, seeking his own self-sufficiency, asked for his inheritance early from what? Most of you know the story, his father. And the, and the Bible tells us that he leaves a home of trust, a home of stability, solidarity, and permanence. And then he goes out and he throws away everything that his father gives him on loose living and wild women. And after the money gives out, he finds himself in a situation with no roots, nowhere to go. 
He's working on a pig farm. He's knee-deep in pig manure. And he's so desperate, he gets down on his hands and knees and begins to eat alongside of the pigs. As a sidebar, friend, this is a great story. A great story for you here today or for us here today to be aware of. It's a great story showing us where the radical, autonomous, secular individualism and the forces for unfettered freedom will take you, friend, when it's all played out and when it's all said and done. Both as a society and as an individual. You live this lifestyle of the prodigal son the way he starts out with this. You will find yourself fragmented, orphaned, unsettled, discontent, sad, shamed, and all alone. Or as I heard one motivational speaker say one time, broke, busted, and disgusted. (laughs) But as this guy begins to eat the food of the pigs, listen, something amazing, something miraculous, something revolutionary begins to happen by the power of God in this guy's soul. As he's beginning to eat, when he's in his knee deep, really, really in the pig poop of his, you know, kind of the situation he's created himself. All of a sudden he says to himself, wait, I have a what? A father. I have a father. And he gets up, and most of you know the story, he returns home to his father who intimately embraces him and delivers his son from the mess that the son has made of his life. Beloved, it really is a beautiful and amazing story that reflects God the Father's love for his children. But maybe that's where some of you are at this morning. Perhaps you feel alone. Perhaps you feel orphaned or at the end of the tracks of the long road of individualism. And that you know something is missing in your life today. That you know that you don't have roots. There's nothing in your life to really ground yourself to. And you know this morning you need the deep intimacy and deliverance. You need that same revolution in your soul that the prodigal son received that only God can give. Listen, friends, there's hope this morning. Why? Maybe it's for the first time for you or maybe it's been a long time. You, like the prodigal son, can say, wait, I have a father. I have a father and I can return home to him. That's what this prayer, the beginning of our father hints at. Listen, to call God father this morning, it doesn't just mean that when you pray this, that God's going to get merely on your side or your team or assist you along with your pet projects in life. See, to call God father or to address God father as Jesus instructs means that God the father almighty is your daddy. And by being your father... There is intimacy and relationship with him. It means, friend, that you have roots this morning. It means that you have an inheritance, that you have a family that you're sitting with right now, that you have an identity and you have a hope that a God will deliver you from your bondage and your sin. He will deliver you even from the bondage of yourself if you'll let him. We are God's children. But friend, there is hope in the word father. But friend, also... You need to know the fine print of this as well. The fine print of calling God your father. For calling God your father entails a risk, a great risk. See, in Jesus' day, a son would apprentice his father. Wouldn't matter if his father was like a carpenter or a fisherman or a market person or whatever. The son would apprentice his father and then join his father in his work and vocation in the world. 
Friends, what was the project of Christ and his father? What were they engaged in? Beloved, they were engaged in nothing less than displaying God's glory through a new exodus of rescuing the people and the world from evil and injustice and fear and sin. And Christ did that by apprenticing his father and laying down his life for others. And friends, likewise, as we too call God our father, we too, as his apprentices, as we apprentice he and Jesus, we are to do the same and follow their example in the world and lay down our lives for others. So at the Eucharist today, Lord's table, when we say, Father, think about this. You're saying intimately, God, you are my dad. And when we call God Father, we are like the prodigal son, admitting our need of deliverance and that we need him in our life. And we're admitting that we know, or we're admitting that we know we have hope of being delivered. You can say this morning, I have a father that I can return to. But friends, also know the fine print that you're signing up to be his apprentices, to join God, our father, and and Jesus in fathering the kingdom of God. That you're signing on to apprentice them, to step out into a world that's full of pain and darkness, to spread the healing light and love of God into a dark and dying world. And that you're to go out as his apprentices and reflect his glory. And that brings me to the second point. See, secondly, not only does Jesus teach his disciples to call God Father, he also teaches the disciples to pray for God's glory to prevail in the world. He teaches the disciples to pray for God's glory to prevail in the world. See, after addressing God as Father, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer really is concerned with God's honor and glory in the world. Say, what do you mean? Look at verse 2. Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Now, what does Halloween mean? I know when I was a kid, I'd oftentimes say Halloween be your name because I didn't know the difference. I thought that's what everybody else was saying. I couldn't read that time. But no, what does hallowed mean? Well, hallowed simply means holy. And so when we pray like this, what we are saying, hallowed be your name, is that we are desiring to see God's name to be reverenced, to be holy, to be sent out and seen by humanity, and that God would be acknowledged as God in the whole world. And when we think of his name being hallowed, we're actually, or say, hallowed be your name. We're praying for his glory to be revealed out in the world. You say, well, that's fine, Father Keith, but we live in a world that does not really honor God, that doesn't honor his character, his work, his name, or reputation. So how does his character, his work, his name, reputation, and holiness, these things you're talking about, become hallowed? How do they get reflected into the world so that people will reverence God and so that people will make or ascribe to his name holiness? How does that happen? Well, listen to Ezekiel 36, 22. It provides a clue. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that would be the people of God, including us, we could apply it that way, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. So get that. It's not for your sake, but it's for the sake of my holy name. Then if you take a trip and read through Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, you'll find all these really cool things that God's doing for his people. In fact, he he says the following. He says, I'm going to gather and unify my people. You see, if you read through the passages, he's cleansing his people. He cleanses them from their uncleanness. 
You continue to read, you find that he gives people new hearts. You find out that he puts his Holy Spirit within them. You find that he causes them to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. You find that God is actually providing for his people. And you also find God rebuilding what's been torn down. Say, what's the point? Friends, there's many of you here today who can give testimony to the Lord doing some of these very same things I just named from Ezekiel, perhaps in your life. For instance, some of you could say, man, our marriage was falling apart until God brought us back and unified us and brought us together. See, just like in in Ezekiel's passage, God unifies Some of you could say, you know what? I I was living in a lifestyle outside of the will of God, but God has cleansed me. He's forgiven me of that, and he has set me free. Over in Ezekiel's passage, we saw where God cleanses and he delivers people. Some of you may would say this morning, you know, I I used to not like really even like people, much less love people. But now through the power of Christ, I found it in my heart to be able to love people again. See, God does give new hearts. If that's you. Some of you would say this morning, you know what? We were going broke, but God provided. God provides. Some of you could say, I lost everything in my life or business, but God has rebuilt our lives in some shape, form, or another. See, God from Ezekiel, he restores. Some of you may may say this morning, I was actually able to forgive the person who betrayed me, who hurt me, who wounded me, or whatever it was they did. See, God forgives and then empowers Some of you may be able to say this morning, you know, the world just seemed like such a dark place to me for such a long long time, but now the darkness has lifted. God heals, God restores, God rebuilds, rebuilds. Friends, many of you under the sound of my voice this morning have lived these things out that I just named. And I don't know what your story may be this morning. But you know what happens when you share those stories of God's work in your life? It really does reveal and reflect and spread the holiness and glory of God out into a world that needs to see and hear these stories about God. And you know what happens when they hear those? God's name is hallowed. How does that happen? Have you ever heard a story like that and you're like, well, praise God. And you really mean it. Or thanks be to God. That's a great thing. That's God's name being hallowed. That's giving glory to God. That's saying, you know, sometimes it's like, look, I had nothing to do with this. God did it all. That's hallowing God's name. And so, friends, this morning, we're to address God as our Father. We're to pray that his name is to be hallowed on the earth, to reveal his glory. But also, and it's the third point this morning, we're to pray that God's kingdom break into our lives and into the lives of the world, or the life of the world. See, Jesus teaches them to pray that God's kingdom will break into their lives and and into the world. Look again at verse 2. Jesus says, your kingdom come. All right. What in the world does it mean for God's kingdom to come? Beloved, when Christ came the first time, you can read read this through the Gospels. He went about proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the kingdom of God is here, and that it's being set up in people's midst, right? And through the Gospels, we can see Jesus doing just that, him setting up the kingdom of God. He's doing this as he sets people free from sin, evil, sickness, and death. That's taking place. 
Now, that may be the case for some of you here this morning. And so to a certain degree of all of you who know Christ and have experienced his love and his grace and forgiveness and healing from sin and bondage, his kingdom has been set up in your lives. But the kingdom of God will not be fully finalized and completely set up until Christ's second coming. Until, as it says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of God of the world has become the kingdom of our, excuse me, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So friends, today, we live today in this in-between times where the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, has been started, it has been to a degree set up in and through the church, but yet there's a whole lot more to come. Another way of saying that is that we live currently, or we live right now in the already, but the not yet. And, and some people have asked me, they said, well, you know, why do you think, we actually had a discussion of this with our life group a while back, why don't we see more of the kingdom of God than breaking in our lives or breaking out into our lives? Why do we not see this go happening in our churches? Why do we not see this uh, great revival taking place? What's missing? And I mean, and perhaps there's lots of reasons, but maybe just one, if we're honest, it may be our prayer life. Because more oftentimes than not, we, our prayers, and this applies to me too, sound more like my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in my imaginary heaven. (laughs) Instead of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in your heaven, Father. So still, we've got to answer the question, how does the kingdom of God come about now? How does that happen? Listen, beloved, it happens through the power of God, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working in and through his church and his people. That means you and that means me. But beloved, you gotta be open to that. The kingdom of God breaks in every church service here where the people of God gather to worship in spirit as we come to sit under the word and as we come to celebrate and partake in the sacraments. These things shape and form us, get this, so that we might practice out living out in the earth, or excuse me, living out heaven on earth on Monday through Saturday. Let me say that again. These things shape and form us so that we might practice now living out heaven on earth Monday through Saturday. That's what this is all about. And then the big one, the kingdom of God really breaks in as people in their own lives see their need for Christ's rule and reign in their own lives. When they begin to see their need for Christ's rule in their marriage and see his reign in their homes, to see his rule and reign in jobs and the communities that were around and the businesses. And then, and then, and only then, we make those repentant decisions necessary in faith to allow Christ to rule and reign in those areas. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God breaks in as we make repentant decisions necessary in faith to allow Christ to rule and reign in those areas of our life. Beloved, the kingdom breaks in also as we cooperate with God, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, to go out and transform this fallen world and make it as best we can. To make it as best as we can, God's world once again. That restoration thing. So, friend, I want to ask you something this morning. Where is it in your life today that you need to see the kingdom of God break into your world? Where in your world do you need to see the kingdom of God break into today? Friend, I'd highly encourage you to come to the prayer team with that request today during Holy Communion. They'd be happy to pray for you about that. 
But people of God, with all this said, we do have it. We have a choice. See, it's been said of the people of God of the past that they lived as if they had swallowed gyroscopes. Now, I don't know if all you know what that is, but gyroscope's like a little, just matter, imagine a little metal uh, cylinder that's on an axis. It's kind of a top-like thing. You, the little ones are like toy you can get over at the uh, hardware store or the uh, drug store. You put a string on it, you wrap it around, you pull it, and the wheel begins to spin, and you can balance it on your finger and move your finger this way, and the whole time it stays flat. That's what he's talking about. But it's been said that the people of God swallowed those things, and I'll get to, that, to the point here in a minute. They swallowed gyroscopes. But friends, I'm afraid today, it seems like instead of gyroscopes, a lot of us have swallowed Gallup poles. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way. He said that the church has become more like a thermometer, merely reading and recording the ideas and principles of popular opinion when it should be a thermostat, out transforming the mores of our society. Church, what's it going to be for you today? Friend, what's it going to be for you today? Gyroscope or Gallup pole? Thermometer or thermostat? Leader or panderer to the opinions? An example or just words? Beloved, the Lord's Prayer can be like a gyroscope in your life, literally. It can be a stabilizing force and your life today that will always remind you that no matter where you are in life, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad things may get, you have a heavenly father and that God is your daddy. That he has delivered you from sin, evil, and death and that you are his adopted son and daughter and that there will always be hope of return for you to come home to your father. Each and every Sunday that we say that here at this table, when we come and say our father, all of that is being held up and realized for you. Beloved, when we're confused in this world, we can't figure out what in the world we should be doing or the choices we should make. Instead of being the thermometer and taking our cues from the culture, the Lord's Prayer really can be a thermostat in your life, reminding us of all the hallowed saving works God has done in the lives of his people that you can read in the Bible. And also, remember that when you get to the hallowed point, the hallowed point, the holiness, all those things he has already done in your life, it can serve as a reminder of that. And beloved, the Lord's Prayer gives us directives as leaders so that we're not panders catering to popular opinion and political correctness. But instead... As his apprentices, we really are to seek the kingdom of God first. To go about making conscious decisions and choices that allow the rule and reign of Jesus to be fully realized in our own lives and in all the world that is under our purview as best we can. So friends, this morning, when we come to the Eucharist, our Heavenly Father desires to be generous to his children. That's in the rest of the passage that we didn't get to. He desires to give you what you need. He desires to forgive us, to protect us, and even fill him, fill us with his Holy Spirit. And so, friends, when we come this morning and hear the words, now as our Savior has taught us, may we as the people of God with open and uplifted hands be bold in our hearts to say, our Father. 
And let us follow him, not just in words, but truly follow his example in faith as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.